said and pinpoint all the million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them shit like Beaver Man. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are spending all my beans. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help was like, it's like, I wish, I wish, every time he's driving it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, every time we do it it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, every time we loving it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better riding speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew up behind me. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I could hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kinda understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic power. <laughs> Focused on myself. Can't help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. Every time we drive in the field, just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we move in the field, just like this. Feels just like this. It's just and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and we are here to talk about another episode, this ongoing conversation around what it means to be woke, whether the word wokeness is useful, why it is that despite a kind of broad acknowledgement that people mean different things when they say the word, some folks are really committing to using that word in particular as part of their uh, political agenda and so forth and so on. I was so glad to be joined on the podcast by Freddie DeBoer and Asita Nuevo of the uh, New Republic. And Freddie, who wrote a um, you know much uh, read, well, and widely received uh, article on what it means to be woke on his own Substack. Um, to summarize, you know, I, I do think I agree with Freddie uh, when he points to this one aspect of wokeness that Sam Aller Bell also covered in an article that he wrote in New York Magazine, and which we talked about on the podcast last summer, which is this part of it that's like assuming that everybody already knows about kind of rapidly changing norms and then being kind of jerk. Uh, to them when they don't already know something that's relatively new, like presuming that everyone should already know and not taking in good faith that some people are just catching up um, with the zeitgeist or catching up with social norms and aren't um, transgressing in bad faith. I think that that's perfectly reasonable. But we all know that when Ron DeSantis says Florida is where woke comes to die, he's not designing his own entire public policy platform around the idea that sometimes it's annoying when people tell you not to use, uh, you know, uh, the word grandfathered in or rule of thumb uh, when you didn't realize that those words were now considered to be inappropriate. He's talking about something else. And as we discussed on Rising Today in a segment that I thought was pretty good, um, there is this authoritarian bent 
uh, where the idea of something that everyone agrees with is being stretched to the limits to get buy-in to the kinds of censorship regimes and other kinds of policies that more people don't actually agree with. And so the vagueness of the term is serving the purpose of creating a larger constituency for something that than what really uh, exists. So I want to play a quick little clip from the episode and then we can get into it. Sorry about that. This should be going directly through to the roadcaster. For some reason, it isn't here. Let me try this again. Here we go. You want to be done with the word woke? Yeah, I, I would like to be done with the word. Just for the record, I, I thought that the question was totally appropriate. I, I, I was not aware of Bethany Mandel before this. I haven't read her book. I don't uh, have any interest in insulting her. But like, when my first book came out three years ago, and I was doing promo for it. I was so paranoid that someone was going to challenge me about one of my sources. They memorized 50 citations, like, word for word. <laughs> okay, like, you put a book out into the world, you are going to be asked to defend it. You know, and I just don't, like, I, I think I think maybe her publishing company failed her or something. But somebody had to pull her aside and say, you better know what you're talking about here. You know, I agree with Freddie that you should be prepared to defend the thing that you just, or, you know, the, the, if you write a book and you're asking people to buy it and take you seriously, like you should know, have a basic sense of what you're talking about and have definitions that are available to you for important concepts. Even given that, though, like, you know, people mess up and being on camera is stressful and, and you know, things happen. Uh, so I, I don't necessarily um, alter for that. As much as, again, like the, the response to being criticized or laughed at, um, you know, to try to do this like character assassination thing to somebody who treated you fairly and who asked you a fair question and was very respectful, I thought was kind of slimy. Um, it is kind of identity politics. Lot. It is I kind think. of identity politics. I, as a mother, I, you know, XYZ. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but the thing, the thing about it, though, is like, I think that the larger thing you can extract from that example actually ties into what I was saying in, in the point before you asked this last question. Um, we need to be better at absorbing criticism. Mm. Like we need to develop individual mechanisms, whatever you got to do to prevent us from freaking out when people make fun of you on the internet or who you say things, you know, you don't like about you on the internet. Like there, there needs to be some kind of internal fortitude that we build up that prevents us from lashing out. And for the record, I actually went on to say after that, that I actually don't, you know, I think it's very normal to have, you know, to be overwhelmed by the level of um, pylon that came Bethany's way. That's not me weighing in on whether or not I very much disagree with her statements. Cause I very much disagree with her statements, but um, you know, I would think it's, it's one of those things that it's an, an, a normal emotional response to be really overwhelmed and bothered by that. But what we do have control over is how we react. And since it came up, it, I would do want to play an additional instance of this story getting some traction. Of all people, Jen Psaki on her new show covered it, and we covered that on the Hill this morning. So let me just play a little bit of that while uh, we warm up here, and then we can get right into it. 
In the first episode of her new MSNBC show, former White House press secretary Jen Psaki broke down the GOP's supposed war on wokeness and some familiar faces showed up. Let's watch. In a recent interview, it was even too difficult for at least one conservative commentator to define what woke actually even means. Conservative author Bethany Mandel has written a book that covers this exact subject. But here's what happened when she was put on the spot. Would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple times, and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that... Um, I. This is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define, and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to re -to totally reimagine and re re redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, sorry, I, it's, it's hard to explain in a 15-second soundbite. And here's what Saki had to say about that interaction. It's hard to explain. Just two cents from someone who has worked a few years in communications. If you can't explain it and people don't understand it in 15 seconds, it may not be the winning message you think it is. All right, so I strongly encourage everybody to go, actually, and watch that clip in particular on the Hill today. Batia was in studio and with all three of us in studio and made for some really interesting, robust conversations. And because Batia has a relationship with Bethany, she kind of, you know, played the foil and mooted her position in the debate over wokeness. And I think it made for a really good conversation. One thing that I thought was really important to point to though is in the both the definition that I believe Bate gave on the show and in the definition that um, uh, Bethany offered the next day or so after the interview there is this argument that what the left or what progressives are trying to do is create hierarchies of oppression which to me feels like the ultimate gaslighting because whatever you think about social justice initiatives aka wokeness the whole goal is to address existing hierarchies of oppression and get rid of them so that we have actual equality. And the fact that so few people pick up on that, so few people hear Bethany say, as you just did, you know, create, you know, the goal of anti-wokeness is to create hierarchies of oppression. I mean, that really tells on itself, right? In an interesting way. And in her more revised version that, of course, we talked about on the podcast episode today that she gave after the fact on Twitter, she makes this argument that the problem with wokeism is that it tries to point uh, say that every um, every disparity is a consequence of discrimination and therefore we have to work until we get equality of outcomes which some people someplace do say there are definitely people who really focus on that equity approach but it's never been the mission of the majority of the left most people don't know what equity is Bernie Sanders very famously was just on Bill Maher completely unable to define equity has no idea what it means it says he wants equality and the common sense understanding of the world is that nobody believes that every single difference that exists in humanity is a consequence of discrimination. Sometimes there's more male firefighters because there are strength requirements that more men meet. Sometimes there's more tall people in the NBA because it makes it easier for you to be a basketball player. In some countries in Scandinavia where they have uh, eliminated a lot of the barriers to different kinds of professions, you still see certain kinds of sex segregation as a consequence of cultural choices, which indeed are ingrained and aren't completely, I think, detached from what women were historically encouraged to do or prevented from doing, 
but you can't exactly call it, you know, women are not being allowed to do X, Y, and Z. So it's a much more nuanced conversation, but by painting it as this kind of more draconian, we will mold society until there's exact equality of outcomes in every scenario, you can get a lot of buy-in from people who would not necessarily buy it into the idea that there are is no historical inequity and that there not, needs to be nothing done from a public policy perspective to address it. And Batya and I got into that a little bit on the show, and I got to say I'm a little frustrated by having to keep bringing up the fact that you know my parents, my parents <laughs> were born into an America where they did not have equal rights under the law. Not a million years ago, my parents and people are trying to, you know, you know, make this argument about why are you, you know, why are you trying to create hierarchies of oppression when my parents were born into a world with hierarchies of oppression, and there, and that exact flip is being used to sidestep any kind of accountability for our government imposing laws that treated people differently on the basis of their race and, of course, their gender and other. Uh, immutable characteristics as well. So that's enough jibber-jabber for me. Let's hear from you. Matthias, what is on your mind tonight? Hi, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, cool. Um, okay, I so I, I took a couple of notes in the episode because uh, I thought it was a great episode. And I think despite being a, a, a topic that – I think it's a really good topic, and I think that there's some incredible um, strategic and philosophical uh, uh, things that, that that come out through the conversation. But um, the, the first the first note that I had made was um, about the the origin of the term political correctness. I don't know if you or other people in the chat know this, but it was originally a Soviet term, and it didn't. You know, it didn't mean um, like, oh, not saying um, not saying something racist or sexist or just rude, but, you know, whether or not something was essentially aligned with a political reality. Right. Like they, you know, for example, it would be politically incorrect to say, oh, a worker, uh, someone that works a wage job is bourgeois. Right. Like, no, they're. They're they're a worker. They're a proletarian. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I think it is I think it is an interesting uh, distinction from. And it's not like it's totally divorced from how we use it now. Right. Like it would be politically incorrect to say that. You know, like uh, the the poverty rate among black people is due to some inherent characteristic, et cetera. You're, so you're saying that the it it would be considered to be not PC because it uh, ignores the economic interests of a class of workers that we should be you know framing in a solidaristic way and who have a genuine mutual interest as a class of workers, not that it's not PC and then that we should, quote unquote shouldn't say it because it like looks bad for black people. Yeah, exactly, and and that it's like also it's a result of political, um, you know, it's, it's a consequence of political decisions from the past. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it's, it would be politically wrong mm. to say, oh, you know, blah, 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 blah. In, that's, that's so interesting because in that definition, that really cuts through. If we really meant it when we said politically incorrect, and that would cut through an awful lot of the identity politics hand-wringing 
that is a kind of, what I have been characterizing as weaponized identity politics. Because you would never describe it as, you know, politically incorrect to argue that breaking up the banks would cure, you know, it would benefit, you know, black people. Like a, a lot of the, a lot of the ways that I, I would argue identity politics gets perverted are exactly divorcing the class element from their argument. So you wouldn't even be calling that PC. I mean, I'm sorry, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be calling that politically correct. You would be yeah, saying, yeah. well, in fact, all of the, you know, the quote unquote woke liberals who are kind of, I would argue, polluting these terms are the ones that are in fact politically incorrect. Right, right. Their solution, their solutions are precisely politically incorrect. Right? Mm-hmm. It is politically incorrect to keep the banks together. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I don't. I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me terribly to learn. Look, at the end of the day, so much of the trouble here is that a handful of affluent people from historically marginalized groups got their hands on some terms and used them to their own personal ends. And it really it ended up hurting movements for substantive justice, including economic justice, down the line. And that's that's what makes it so difficult for someone in our position. So for leftists to be engaged in this conversation, because you got to disagree with everyone. You got to disagree with Bati. You got to disagree with Robbie. You got to disagree with Jinsaki. And, you know, for the average person, it's exhausting to try to, to tease out exactly what we do affirmatively mean. Yeah, no, I, I can, I, I totally agree with you. It is, it, it does come off as incredibly annoying to be the person that is like, no, that's wrong. And then someone suggests something else. And they're like, mm-hmm, but that's wrong, too. And let me tell you why. Mm-hmm. Okay, something affirmative has to be, has to be stated. Yeah, people in the comments, anyway, just keep asking me to define woke. And I'm like, I'm not the one that's using this word. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. talk about this at all. Uh, and that's part of the problem. Uh, people, there's, there's some folks that really benefit from this discourse. And I don't think it's an accident that the clip from Rising That Went So Viral was something that in some ways is so, like, not substantive. And I got to say, I haven't really, like, enjoyed, and maybe that's not the right word, but it's not as though... I, I've like enjoyed getting kind of some publicity for this in the way that I would if it had been mm-hmm. one of the I think much more difficult, much more substantive, much more important conversations that I've had on Rising or Bad Faith that went viral. But again, I don't think it's any accident that they don't want to, you know, take a clip of me, you know, uh, pressing uh, Rokana on his inconsistency over U.S. intervention. The, what they want is, you know, dunking on a conservative because that's what you know, liberal television always wants. Yeah, no, I, I did think I didn't I don't watch The Daily Show. And so um, when I was listening to the, the episode, I was amazed that they they took that clip. That's I mean, wow. Talk <laughs> uh, talk about going places. That is that's really made the rounds. I did. I did want to say I'm I'm so sad that in all of all of the versions of it, they cut out that bit at the end where you say, like, oh, you can take your time. Yeah. I was, like, was crying laughing. Yeah, um, I was no irritated. Not, yeah. The Hill even cut it out. I, when I used it in my Raider last week, they used an abbreviated version, and I just don't understand why. Because since if you read any of the commentary, that's what everyone was responding to, but whatever. I, I, can't, fight, I'm, I can't fight that battle. Um, so I, I did have one question um, because – it seems like it seems like regarding woke, there is um, kind of like a uh, 
I know the the hiding hiding something under a cup game kind of going on mm-hmm. with like political language, and I wonder because it seems like every the observation. Every, and what, I'm sorry, sorry that sorry. was a that was a mess up on my end. Go ahead. Oh, um, I so I was just thinking. It seems like every few years there is like a new term that catches fire. It becomes like the catch-all. You know, it in like 2016 we were talking about like identity politics. Mm-hmm. Identity politics. Everything is identity politics. And so I wonder, I wonder if you think like there is anything substantively different about woke, like the way that the woke is being talked about. Because I do think there's something different. But I'm just um, it's hard. It's hard to put the finger on it because, you know, like you said, that, you know, people have been bitching about political correctness for decades now. Um, you know, it's, they, it just seems like the same um, the same resentment gets renamed, repackaged and then just pushed out there. And I guess it is cool that you've got Christopher Rufo saying like. I'm the wrapping paper man, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Well, why don't you tell me what you think is substantively different? Well, I don't know. I think that it it does seem like there is I I suppose I'll I'll say that I'm thinking more about like like I'm thinking Ron DeSantis and mm-hmm the way that it is being politically used, not like discursively used, it seems like there's a lot of focus on um, trans people Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that, you know, I read that that drag bill that passed in, in Tennessee was like one of the first drag bills that has been proposed in like decades and decades and decades. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is like a, a new fixation. I don't I don't know. I'm I'm not sure what the difference is. I'm going to be honest. I'm kind of just shooting from the hip here. Well, look, it's not as though there haven't been efforts to criminalize a whole bunch of things. You know, in the 90s, it was, you know, there was all this assisted suicide discourse because mm-hmm. states rights go off the window. When what was it? Was it Oklahoma? Was it, it was some mid mid not Midwest? What do you call it? mountain mountain time state? That had um, made it legal to do assisted suicide, and suddenly the Republicans were going to make that their um, stalking horse. Obviously, the ongoing abortion conversation. I mean, there have been efforts to make illegal social things. There was a huge fight over prayer in school that was happening yeah. around the turn of the century. So, you know, this is, it doesn't feel to me like the first time. It does feel like they're being extremely efficient. Um, we'll see how many of these bills actually pass. Um, I don't know if you saw the Andrew Sullivan coverage that was really skewered um, by the left and liberals on Twitter over the weekend um, where he described the uh, the kind of authoritarianism, if you will, coming from the left as more important, more of, of a, a harm than the authoritarian that's com- authoritarianism that's coming from the right. Um, in part because it's so plainly unconstitutional. He said that DeSantis's laws were almost, quote, almost poignant in their plain unconstitutionality. So I guess we're not supposed to worry about it because it's so obviously against the law. Um, but I think that's obviously wrong. And it's, it's terrifying that there isn't, even if the laws don't pass, that there isn't more 
pol- there aren't more political consequences for conservatives who would basically come out and say we want to make illegal books, dozens of math books, mm-hmm. teachers teachers having to put tarps over their bookshelves in case they are subject to criminal fines. Teachers, I don't know if you saw the clip of the teacher on a Zoom call asking a principal if he's allowed to say that slavery was wrong in a classroom and the principal kind of shrugging and saying, I honestly don't know. Like, I honestly just don't know. I can't tell you. And then I have to sit there. I'm sorry, I have to sit there on rising and like pretend that there's an equivalence between, you know, some kid at Oberlin heckling their professor. I'm sorry if you went to Oberlin, people. I don't know why that's always my go-to school example, but you know, some 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 kid at some liberal arts school heckling their professor, and the governor of Florida saying that this is where woke comes to die and taking and starting a pogrom against Disney employees because I don't know they don't hate gay people there. Like I don't know, it's bizarre. Yeah, no, I did. I did not see that coverage, and I've got to say, um, as a gay man, as Andrew Sullivan's a gay conservative, right? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I I really don't get it because, man, as soon as they are done with trans people, like <laughs> the list moves up. It doesn't stop there, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, Absolutely. And at least one of those those trans laws, those anti-trans laws, by the way, it was so poorly written that it would have it would have uh, prevented, as far as I can tell, women wearing pants. Um, you know, men, men doing the hasty pudding show at Harvard, you know, Shakespeare yeah, yeah. productions that were historically accurate and had men playing women's roles. Well, we know that Shakespeare is really woke. I mean, look at Taylor. <laughs> like uh, uh, Tyler Tyler Perry's yeah. not going to be able to show his movies. Like I don't know, like like wild, like wild overreach. And then I'm I'm just like arguing this on Rising, and they're like, well, you know, it's 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 not the it's not the same. What do you mean it's not the same? Like these are things that are actually happening. But it's actually happening. And, 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 and Robbie today, he was arguing, well, that's kind of like a soft censorship. You know, nobody's telling these, these teachers not to, not to show those books. They're preemptively, you know, choosing not to teach from those books. I'm like, yeah, under threat of criminal penalty, including jail time, that's the exact kind of censorship that you were, we're complaining about with Twitter files. If we can say yeah. that the FBI reaching out and telling Twitter that they should censor something without ordering them to do so is dangerous because of the influence and the suggestive power of the intelligence agencies, then how can you turn a blind eye when the governor of a state puts into effect a law that could subject you to incarceration if you accidentally read a book that is being judged by subjective criteria, like, is it okay to say that slavery is bad? Yeah, I mean, that seems, it seems like a particularly uh, grotesque reversal of the actual, um, you know, stakes to to say, oh, that's soft segregation, or not soft segregation, a soft um, censorship, and the other, you know, oh, left authoritarianism ugh, is... Uh, Oh, that's like real. That's real censorship. It's like, okay, I'm sorry, but you know, if if you're going to say that that is self-imposed, then it's also equally self-imposed that, you know, you don't, you no longer feel comfortable saying, I don't know, X, Y, Z. You know, choose choose the newest thing. I didn't know rule of thumb was 
I didn't know rule of thumb was outlawed. Yeah, of course, nobody knows because, you know, whatever. Right. And maybe one day we'll look back and say, oh, we were so glib about rule of thumb, but that was a very, very bad thing. I mean, that's the way that society and culture works. But I got to mm-hmm. tell you, my new thing, I tried this out on Rising Today and I think it was effective. My new thing is not to try to argue, but okay, but what about this right authoritarianism? Whatever. What I say is that I am against authoritarianism wherever it rears its head, and I am highly suspicious of folks who seem less interested in arguing against authoritarianism but are more interested in point scoring for their side. And I have trouble believing you're actually invested in being anti-authoritarian if you spend all your time talking about how bad the left is doing it and no time talking about actual laws that are being promulgated by Republican governors across the country to substantively limit the rights of American citizens. I mean, I think that that is a really good way of framing it because it really does seem like um, we have entered uh, an almost terminal feeling like team sports mentality, at least for the time being, you know, like you really can't, ask people to consider what, in quotes, their side, uh, you know, does wrong. Like, I know so many people who uh, are Democrats who, you know, like, you could not get them to um, to really think for five seconds about, you know, Biden opening up the, the Arctic drilling, right? The, mm-hmm. You know, all, all this stuff, it's like, it, it just co- go like water off of a duck's back. And I think that for conservatives as well, it's probably better not to. Um, I, I think that I think that that's a, a really good a really good uh, strategic way to approach that. Yeah, we'll see if it works. It seemed to go over um, in the room. I'm like loath to read the comments. I'm saving my piece for today, but we'll see. I'll keep trying it out. And you guys, if you if you found things that work for you out in the field, let me know. But thanks for calling in, Matthias. No problem. Keep the peace. Keep the faith. Keep the peace, too. <laughs> um, all right. I'm going to go to Amanda. What's on your mind tonight? For those who are not familiar with how I'm doing things here, I do one from the front of the queue and then a random poll from the middle of the queue. Hey, Amanda. What's on your mind? I'm getting a lot of feedback. I'm not sure if I'm on earphones or what's going on. I can hear you, but I hear myself more loudly in an echo. That's much better. That's much, much better. Thank you. You've got a couple co-hosts up there. I do. And guys, I don't know what I'm going to do about you because now that you're not in the queue, I don't know. I mean, I think you were kind of close to the beginning. And now I feel like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about you guys inviting yourself up here into the speaker slot. But go ahead, Amanda. You're you're up right now. Thanks, Brianna. Um, I, I had, I, I watched the episode today and thank you. I appreciate it. It, it was, um, clearly not, not people not wanting to talk about it during the conversation, but I think that's true of the general population too. So I think that was a good, it was a really good experience to watch that. I want to bring up a previous episode that was a little while ago that just keeps ringing in my head about something sure, Ralph sure. Nader said when you interviewed him mm-hmm. about about the um, book that he wrote, that if you gave him a thousand people and the money that he could get Medicare for all in like 18 months or something. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought that something was going to come from that. I don't know. I know that's not really your lane, but maybe I thought somebody that is a follower of yours might 
pick up that mantle. I don't know if you've heard anything or thought about interviewing him again. But I was. Just I haven't heard him. anything. I'm afraid. Okay. And the other one is I don't know um, too much about this person, but I've just started listening to the fourth season of his podcast, Thurston Baratunde. Baratunde Thurston. Yeah, I remember him from way back in the day. So he has a podcast called How to Citizen, and the fourth season is kind of talking to people, how do we re rejigger the narratives and what kinds of things can we do, like IRL, what are people doing IRL to try and address some of the things. The premise of the podcast is that citizen should be a verb. And the citizen so, should be, I'm sorry? A verb. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I just was curious if you if you knew anything about him or if you would think about having him on. Because I, I find sure. him I mean, compelling. I'm, I'm familiar with him from back in the uh, kind of Obama days where mm-hmm. there wasn't so much uh, left liberal uh, gap. And mm-hmm. I... Really liked him um, back then and thought, but I do think of him as more of a um, more Obama liberal figure. Maybe we all we've all evolved, so I'm not trying to pigeonhole him. But I I remember following him very closely back then. I really liked him, but that was before I kind of had my own political. Uh, awakening and, and haven't really followed his career since then. In fact, he was invited. He was a speaker for like one at my law firm or well, maybe it was at my friend's law firm for African American History Month one year. And I remember going and gushing and I had his book and he signed it. Like I, I'm very familiar with him and I read his book from way back then in 2013 or whatever it was. Well, he definitely um, seems to be connected in with NPR. He's got another. He's got a new TV show co- coming out about being out in the wilderness, and um, I haven't looked into that one yet. Mm-hmm. But I think he has probably evolved some, and it's he's got some interesting guests. And so I, I just was kind of, I just was interested to hear if you had any thoughts about that. That's all. No, but I'll definitely um I'll take a listen. I'm I'm interested to see where he's where he is these days, and I I'd probably be quite interested in talking to him too. So thanks for flagging that, Amanda. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. Thank you. You too, Amanda. Keep the faith. Thank you. All right, Levi. What's on your mind tonight? Hello. You with us, Levi? Hey. Hey, What's hey. going on? Uh, not much. Um, yeah, a good episode. Thank you. Uh, lots of good episodes always. Yeah, thanks um, for listening. Yeah, yeah. I was just um, looking back at, uh, it feels like this has been going on for a long time, the, the woke debate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking back to the Michael Brooks before he passed and everything. He was... Um, seemed like he was aggravated um, even at that time. Uh, and he was always referencing uh, Mark Fisher's, you know, exiting the vampire castle. Mm-hmm. Do you recollect those, those halcyon days of just a few years ago before the COVID? I do. Yeah. And I don't know that we've moved very far forward. It seems like, you know, uh, the Mark Fisher stuff, uh, you know, he's like, 
complaining um, in the text right, about like basically two types of personality, one of which is like the sort of the vampire type, which is all about propagating guilt. He says it's driven by a priest's desire to excommunicate and condemn. And then he talks about another group that are, um, you know, not, sort of a little more rarefied, but the neo, neo-anarchists in the UK. He's talking mm. about people who finished graduate school and are on Twitter more than they're doing things in the streets. And he's talking about his frustration around trying to, like, uh, mobilize around the class question at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. And you know, everyone, in this conversation, everyone keeps pushing back against class as a, you know, class reductionism. So it's not it's not good enough, and we keep go rotating through all of the other modes of uh, discourse around this uh, these topics, and um, it's interesting. I was just looking at it again, and it's really funny because the the um, incident that he chooses, or one of the incidents that he chooses to sort of um, sort of riff on, or just recollect that just happened recently, was uh, Russell Brands. Uh, now famous interview with Jeremy Paxman, right, when he came on Newsnight, and uh, he spoke from a working class position, but he did it in that way that, that Russell Brand does, where he, like, mm. puts his hand in his knee and he shuts... Do you, do you remember that speech? I don't. I'm sorry. Oh, you should watch it, actually. It was, it was something that went viral, just like your thing went viral. This went viral. It was a big deal um, in America and England online. Most of your listeners hopefully will recollect it. He, it's before he went back to school and started doing the Under, Skin, Under the Skin podcast. But anyway, the point being, he says, you know, he calls out this uh, TV presenter, Jeremy Paxman, a, t- a sort of major figure in British television for many decades. And he's like, look, I saw you on that program talking about your granny when she would work in a, she was working in, it was one of the, he was on another program where they're looking at the lineage of people and he sees his grandmother working for the Lord in a manner. And he's like thinking about, Oh, what it was like in those days. And Russell Brown says, I just came from somewhere in the working class estate right now, talking to a woman like your grace. So don't like give me all your nonsense with your fake tears. Like, you know, he called him out, starts talking about class and revolution. And I don't need your permission to speak just because I'm an actor. When I was rich, when I was poor, I wasn't allowed to speak because I was poor. Now I'm rich. Everyone's like, you can't speak. Oh, rich. yeah, of course. Yeah, I remember that, was, that. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting is now Brand has just recently come on a second tour, and now he's the conspiracy theorist right-winger for going on other spaces, right? So it's just interesting. In the short span of a few years, uh, watching us have this conversation around and around and thinking like the fact that, uh, or... I believe to be a fact is that uh, I think it was uh, Michael uh, that framed the dumb, dumb left uh, thing, you know, which I really didn't mm-hmm. appreciate. Thought it was stupid. Mm-hmm. That was a kind of Sam Cedar adjacent bullshit. And, um, you know, here we all are. Now there's like Anna Kasparian was sort of coming on of the fringes, starting to get socialisty at that moment. Everyone was sort of rotating around, uh, around Michael and he passes uh, Russell Brand has moved from being, you know, coming out and like educating himself, going back to school and then um, inter- interviewing everybody <laughs> from all sorts of walks of life and has a six million uh, people following on YouTube, starting with Rumble and now they're all saying, oh, you're a grifter. 
I don't know. I'm just, I'm rambling, but I'm rambling, I think, in an interesting way. It's just like there's a bunch of uh, things that I have not forgotten. And I just am listening to you, listening to this. Uh, it's how you got your career start, and it's why I listen to you uh, in the first place. You know, your, your association with Bernie and that, like, your, your first sort of written pieces coming out, um, you know, trying to sort of cut through some of this. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we just get more and more confused as we go or if we're just recycling. I mean, honestly, the thing is, I don't think it is confusing when there is an agenda that models what people want, what working people want. I think there was clarity around, for example, the Bernie campaign, because when you have an affirmative agenda, you don't have to be caught up in whatever discourse is going on. Bernie can pivot to something. He always has something to pivot to. If someone asks him what he thinks about wokeness, he says, I can imagine he would easily say, uh, I'm not exactly sure about that term. I don't personally use that word. I'm here because I'm trying to advance an agenda that will uplift millions of working people in America, starting with healthcare reform, free college tuition, and on and on and on. You know, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And, and he, <laughs> reporters hate him for that reason. And it's like, it's not sexy and you don't get like Atlantic articles written up about you, but it works. But in, in lieu of an affirmative agenda, there is no Bernie. And this is why I think it's, it's useful. I'm sorry to have progressives in a primary. It, it gives us something to talk about in the alternative. It gives us something to prove that we're not whatever we're trying to be painted as. I see people saying, well, Brianna, why, how, why are you dema- denying that identity politics is this and liberals do this? I, I cannot spend another minute of my life saying, well, but I'm not a liberal. And I disagree with liberals on this. It's so muddled. It's so confused. Everyone understood it when we were just Bernie people. Yes, I, I'm I with what Bernie's saying. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm talking about policy. The rest of the stuff people can disagree on. I have my feelings. You can have yours. But none of that is a policy agenda. But what has happened is Democrats have literally made culture. Uh, sorry, uh, Republicans have literally made culture a policy fight okay, in a way that yeah. is deeply authoritarian. Because there's no way to... You're, you're literally trying to legislate the way people live their lives. Meanwhile, yeah. Democrats have done nothing to protect people's freedoms from a legislative perspective, although they love to run on it in things like abortion. And they, too, participate in this because they're doing things like walking around saying, is bringing up the banks going to cure racism and slapping Black Lives Matter flags and rainbow flags in all of the banks and pride parades and and. And, and, and leaving a policy void wide open and saying things like, well, we can't have Bernie Sanders because he's not black enough. Or now we have to all pretend to, to like Kamala Harris. Yeah, I feel like it's a, a there's a policy value kind of conversation that we probably need to go back to. And it's a good time now because of the whole 20th anniversary thing of the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of reminiscing and people bringing back a little bit of memory and putting it into juxtaposition with the, with the conversations right now and, you know, Julian Assange and everyone. Um, but they mm-hmm. took down Corbyn in England using the um, anti-Semitism uh, mm-hmm. thing, which shades into all of this, the woke kind of weaponized wokeness, I guess. You know, it's a kind of wokeness that you agree with. Of course, we don't want anti-Semitism. Uh, in fact, Jeremy Corbyn was... Um, 
post a tweet about um, actually following through on the findings of the board and the 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 Labour Party now is not following through. Uh, and he said, as well as with Islamophobia, etc. So I think if there's a principled stance and you stand on, and you want to see policy reflections and you keep hammering at it, like you say, um, someone like Corbyn, someone like Bernie, there was a, but it's still a historical moment, right? I, I agree, it passed. Something, it passed. He's not going to run again. People don't trust uh, each other anymore. And uh, it is a historical moment. We're in, it's, 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 frustrating that we missed something there but um they brought out the big the big guns to cut cut them down you know they put they used anti-semitism against uh bernie yeah and look and, i don't uh, want to tell they're doing it with, with marion williamson right now they're doing that weird like the view thing where the the view yeah. is like completely fine with cutting her down right now calling you know crystal and auras and all this stuff yeah she's literally saying i'm not talking about that and they're like then they make a mockery of her you know and they're vicious little women on a chat show. I, d- I would like you and Katie Halper to go on there and uh, displace those people. Yeah, well, <laughs> I wouldn't hold my breath. But, you know, I, I'm not in a position, I don't really want to tell anybody to, look, you know, racism is real, anti-Semitism is real, and I don't want to, I'm not, t- I'm not telling anybody to put blinders up so high that you're not, you're going to ignore folks who are telling you that they're experiencing racism or someone is a racist or someone is an anti-Semite. You have to use your own judgment. But my observation is that those attacks land when people who are good people and don't want to be racist and anti-Semitic give them too much energy. I, I know that sounds like really it's tough and really dangerous and I'm a little uncomfortable and I'm not giving anybody advice, but I can't help but observe that Trump who legitimately was a lot of the things that he was described as being managed to skate through without any of that stuff sticking. Cause he just was like, well, I'm not that moving on. And so many, and so many like good faith people who actually care about racism and anti-Semitism are like, well, let me listen to your concerns and let's have a, 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 uh, um, you know, sit cross-legged and hold hands and kumbaya about it. And I'll write an apology letter and I'll bend the knee and, you know, I'll, I'll do what I have to do. And that, that ends up like validating the uh, bad faith attack. Uh, I, I and, agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I do think that there's really something to mes- message discipline that Bernie got right, which is to say, I don't know what they're accusing me of, but I know that they didn't start accusing me of it until I started fighting for working people. So I'm going to keep starting for, fighting for working people, and you can judge for yourselves. That's what I'm going to talk about today. Why so-and-so politician raised taxes on the, the poor and bails out the rich, and why we're cutting school lunches and you know, uh, child tax credits, but bailing out businesses with these millions of dollars in PPP funds that are going to people like Kanye West. I think that's why people got so frustrated, right? I mean, I 100% agree. And if you just kept hammering away at it, and of course you had to do some, uh, and we say of course, but I mean, the political, uh, I guess, calculation of trying to get Biden's ear and everyone trying to say Biden is better than where it could have been, you know, Bernie giving up just, permanently messaging on that thing opened up like the space for people to feel defeated he didn't uh i'm not saying about going daybreak or carrying on his campaign or whatever but just 
I've heard you say that before, I agree. He should have carried it on for longer. But he should have just carried on the rhetoric non-stop from his position. He sort of has here and there around issues when it when necessary, when he seems to feel it's necessary. But for everyone else, I think for it to feel like you're still unified, you need to just keep hearing it. Or um, it dissipates and you start to say, like, why isn't he saying anything until the... You know, why, why, why isn't he saying the same things now when Biden's doing all of this... Uh, you know, you end up getting feeling like you're being, uh, I guess, uh, gaslit or whatever. You know, the parlance today. Today, anyway, I'll stop there. I, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated. I think that the what you were saying about staying on message with uh, social justice platforms, not getting caught up in the woke language, is very similar to what I think was being said by uh, Mark. Mark Fisher that I'm talking to you about, which I reckon he's the guy that wrote Capitalist Realism, mm-hmm. and that was influential on um, you know on Michael Brooks, and I just think that that same idea keeps getting boiled down to class reductionism, and that becomes like a little. But I guess I, I think I disagree with that, Levi, a little bit. I, I honestly don't hear that many people making that. Oh, you're just a class reductionist argument anymore, and I think part of it is why. Who would they even be talking about? Like there's yeah, nobody running. There's it. nobody <laughs> talking. Like there's nobody. Like who are you even fighting with? Who who is this class reductionist? There's nobody saying anything on the left. There's nobody who's a threat, so they haven't even no one even has to say that. So on some level, like for for one, that argument I don't think works as well anymore now that the left has done some good work in diversifying itself. Good, good. So you know, even in 2016, it was the Bernie campaign was wider. Its representatives were wider. Its supporters were wider. And in 2020, as much as, you know, leftists love to talk about how the campaign was too woke. I'm sorry. It did good work insulating itself against those kind of criticisms. And it had, you know, Barbara Smith, the woman who came up with the term identity yeah. politics, yeah. redefining it and making videos for the campaign. It had a more diverse staff and more female staff than any other campaign in the race even though we didn't get glowing write-ups and like vanity fair for it the way that elizabeth warren's campaign did despite the fact that her entire nevada campaign walked off uh (laughs) walked off the job because of bad workplace environment and that got covered in the mainstream media by the way as wow elizabeth warren rebounds beautifully from all the women of color walking off her campaign in nevada Sorry, not over it. But yeah, the, the, the reason why I think you're not hearing as much of that stuff before was that it was hard to argue, to make arguments about class reductionism when Bernie was the only candidate other than Biden that managed to get into double digits with black voters. When Bernie was outpacing Kamala Harris two to one with black voters. When Bernie was won 70, 70% of the Latino vote in Nevada. I mean, they can try. They hit him with Russian disinformation after Nevada, but they certainly couldn't hit him with, you, don't, you, you know, your, your base is white. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, and that was work that people put in to make that happen. But now, what's left? Now, who's gonna who's gonna occupy the space to run that all those people worked hard to create? Maybe it comes. Maybe there's. Um, I mean, they're always looking for something to happen that gives the spark. Right now, I'm very happy to see France and Macron. You know, they're mm-hmm. today, right? They're calling him up for the um, vote of no confidence. Uh, people of sanitation workers are striking. The streets are filled up with 
rubbish that's on fire. I mean, in England, we're um, striking all over the place. Uh, maybe a little of that can. I know that the strike got broken here by uh, the rail strike got broken yeah. by, by Biden, but that's a avenue. Hopefully, that will um, elicit some kind of uh, contagious kind of you know good feeling. I, I look at that and I, I it makes me feel uh, you know like oh good, something's happening somewhere. And uh, maybe it can help recenter like the Ohio um, Palestine crash. Can yeah, I, I would love to see Socialist Alternative did a great job going down um, to the uh, Amazon protests and helping out there. Yeah, I yeah. And I would love to see them. I would love to see them occupy East Palestine. I know Absolutely. that resources are limited and they don't have the budget as DSA. Obviously, I would love to see DSA there, too. But East Palestine is a town of 5,000 people. As far as I'm concerned, 10% of East Palestine should be leftists <laughs> organizing yeah. and, you know, trying to make, demonstrate that we put our money where our mouths are and explaining to these people who are getting pitched hard by Trump and it's already Trump country, but Trump went there and he brought food and provisions. What can the left do for a community like that? Yeah, exactly. Go there and stay. You have to go there and stay there, right? That's the thing. Go and then yep. stay and build trust. That's like the Flint War stuff, right? That was covered by what's his face, Kustaz Ku, right? Um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Jordan Cheriton. Yeah, Jordan Cheriton. His his take sometimes bug me, but on the whole, I always respect the fact that he does that. On He's the there. Ground. He's on the He's ground. There. That costs money and yeah, and yeah. time. Yeah, the time part. I think I think you're there to sort of amplify stories on the stage and do the sort of um, build on messages when they happen. And that's super super important. And then you need. Yeah, the people on the ground that show up. Because I think that's part of Bernie's success, right? Turning up and sticking around for a long time in, in neighborhoods so that people were like, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's not in Nevada message. in particular. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Not just on message. He's They're here. They have a ground game, which is why yeah. it's so frustrating that Biden just came in with no ground game and no off. It's disgusting. But what do you do? Anyway, I'll, I'll leave and let you go on with your call. Um, thank you. I just wanted to uh, say how... Yeah, thank you. I listen to you all the time and I'm enjoying you uh, fighting the good fight articulately. And uh, Thanks, Levi. I appreciate you calling I'm, in I'm, and your thoughtful <laughs> comments as always. Oh, all right. Keep the faith, my friend. Yeah, you too. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Anthony, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, look at that. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. I thought so. That's why I called on you. I love to see a new avatar. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, yeah, I listen to your stuff, but I never get a chance to call in. So, um, I have two thoughts. Um, we can either go in the direction of woke, and I think you know, I don't know. There's um, an organic way that that word has evolved that I think is similar to how people evolve when they are woke, or mm. we can go in the direction of broadly evangelizing like leftism uh, dealer's choice anthony this is your first time uh-huh. up at bat i want i want to hear whatever is lighting you up uh, well i listened to your uh episode this morning and i was thinking about like what would how would i define it if someone asked me what woke means right and um you know i was thinking you know there was there was a time where those of us old enough remember that it just meant awake, right? Aware of you know, systemic underlyings for various issues in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it evolved into this kind of like 
nebulous, nefarious thing where um, everything, you know, we're, we're cartoonizing someone who believes that everything is systemic, right? Mm-hmm. No matter, you know, how, to, how small or individual it is. Um, and I was like thinking about my own journey in my career. You know, I work in um, corporate revenue, let's say that. Mm-hmm. Um, senior senior management and I'm work at in tech and I'm generally the only black guy mm-hmm. in the office. Right. And, um, you know, I have issues that I come across here and there, but in, you know, I'm often, you know, pulled into the HR DEI type stuff just because I'm the face. Yep. I've been there. <laughs> so, um, but I, you know, I, I often talk about how, you know, you know, these issues are important and they're important to highlight, but I try not to wrap myself in them because, you know, the moment I start to see, you know, the racisms, I see it everywhere, you know, and then when I see it everywhere, I start to become just like paranoid almost, right, to where like every little thing, I'm like wondering if there's something underlying to where sometimes I just like want to quit and go work for a black owned company. So there's just one less burden to think about. Right. Mm. And so sometimes I wonder, like, once you become woke as we defined it back in the day, um, do you eventually just kind of go down that path where you become like the annoying cartoonized leftist, you know? I mean, I will say that working in a corporate environment will make you have a hair trigger eventually over time. And it's not because you're, I would argue it's not because you're the sensitive one. It's because you spend so much time trying not to react because you know there's frankly negative professional consequences for you being honest about the ways that people are offending you every day that eventually you become overwhelmed. And it, what's what's so ironic, I think, about some of this discourse around wokeness and being triggered and stuff is that for the overwhelming majority of human history and American history, the onus has been on historically marginalized groups to just shut up at work and not say anything at work. I had, look, I'm nobody's civil rights icon, okay? I am not old, and I personally have not experienced any kind of formalized discrimination. However, if we're talking microaggressions, it's one thing to say, oh, kids are too sensitive. The whole whole of left politics shouldn't be about microaggressions. I agree. That is not what I would call a political issue. That's an HR issue. But boy, oh boy, is it a hell of an HR issue. I had attorneys, <laughs> I had an attorney come up and tell me that my hair looked like a clown. I had, <laughs> I had, I, I was I was tasked with um, doing all of this like DEIs type stuff. Like I had to plan Asian American Heritage Month. I had to plan all of the various Heritage Months because I was like the only person of color around always. Those were hours I was not being compensated for and which were not going to my billables every month. Do you know what I mean? All all of these little things. I experienced very much so as a woman at the law firm how much more difficult it was to form the kinds of bonds that would get me good work and have a good relationship with partners. I watched partners slap my male colleagues on the back, like literally physically slapping them on the back in the hallways and realizing that we were never going to be able to have any kind of physical relationship because of the nature of gender. I experienced being invited out to a dinner and feeling like it's good to be on a dinner with a of someone who can give me work, but also feeling like the dinner was also inappropriate be- because of the datey feel of it. Yeah. <laughs> it 
it felt like a double date and these were two guys who were like not even in, in the litigation department that had taken me and my other summer associate the only other single woman in my program out despite us not being in the transactional law track and the two of us like feeling very uncomfortable at the end of the end of the not date when they tried to hand us cash, just like hand us cash to take a cab home. And we're like, we can just expense this, you know, like, I, it, I don't know what it was or what it wasn't. But like, it definitely is true that there are awkward scenarios that are happening as a consequence of rapidly changing social norms that people haven't figured out yet that are causing people to have professional harm and that are causing other people who might be acting in good faith and not actually trying to be creepy to be in situations where they could be falsely accused of X, Y, and Z. It's a mess out there. It's a mess. Now, is any of that the most important problem? No. Is that like bourgeois concerns that often take precedence in the social sphere because it's bourgeois people who become journalists and talk about this stuff on MSNBC? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but there's like, I don't know. I think about it and there's three. So, you know, let's say I hear a comment that I get a lot, which is like, you know, when you talk to you, you actually are really smart. You know, if you talk to more people, they'll see you're really smart. I'm like, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sorry I don't, I'm sorry I don't give off really smart when you first see me. I wonder what that is. Um, but there's a mode where I hear that and I move on, right, with my life. I'm like, yeah, that happens. There's a mode where I'm like, all right, I quit, right? And there's a mode where I get extremely involved with, you know, helping people understand this. And then I just go down a deep rabbit hole where eventually I'm the cartoonized purple-haired liberal guy that people or leftist guy that people say is the annoying one policing everyone's language right like it's it's very difficult not to see the slippage you know yeah, I mean honestly I never felt job secure enough to ever be annoying out loud I would be complaining about it to my friends but even my mom who worked in basically a a kind of HR function for the UN. She was the focal point for staffers. She offered psychosocial health support for the UN staff members uh, for 17 years. You know, when I told her about an actual sexual harassment incident that I experienced when I was a summer, her advice was like, look, I'm going to be honest with you. In all of my years of doing this, my advice is not to think that you're going to be benefited by reporting this. And it's a summer, it's, it's the summer job. And let's see if this person is there when you come back and work full time. And, and, yeah. and that's my mother who loves me more than anyone in the world. who's just trying to be real about like the squeaky wheel does not get the grease, like reporting things, ratting people out, talking about their microaggressions does not help employees. My stepfather, my stepfather's worked in corporate America for his entire life in the same job for like for 30 years in a way that doesn't happen for people anymore. And he was like the only black man working in like reinsurance for all of that time. And he is like 6'2", a former football player, all-American athlete, big athletic guy. And tell me why his coworkers called him Chris Rock for that entire time. <laughs> they literally say, oh, my God, you look so much like Chris Rock. Yeah. And he, he's never said a word about it in decades. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's the normal reality. So that's what's a little bit frustrating about this whole conversation, this idea that, like, we're all walking around scoring points and getting payouts and, like, winning in contemporary America by being, like, victims at work. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, like okay. Like, there is a lane that I could occupy, right? I'm, I've been senior management at this company, and this is a company I'm at now is Charlottesville-based and a lot of UVA grads there, and they're kind of like, you know, classic 
limousine white liberal types, right? And they're mm. they like the DI. It's almost like um, a fun thing for them. Like <laughs> it's a way for them to signal, but it's also um, I don't know. It's in, there's a, there's a scoring points with each other element to DEI for them, right? And so yeah, like um, a performative. Like I get it. Right. I'm one of the good guys. But the reality is, the moment I take that path, I'm still I'm taken less seriously in my actual work that I yes, do. Yes, a hundred percent. And so it's still not beneficial. There's no world where me going around being like the minority stuff police is going to help my career in any meaningful way. It could take me in a, down a different career path. That's honestly, I think, a fad, right? Yeah, um, if you literally be, do DEI work, it's, it, right, it's exactly, great for you. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's a different path, and it is a bit of a fad, but uh, there's just no, there's no world where this helps me in, in my actual career. So that's right. another shit. Right, right. Yeah, yeah look... Again, now I don't mean to like make this conversation also now about all this PMC stuff, but I mean that is, I think the the broad it's a, it's, it reflects that broader argument that I was making at the beginning where it's people you know, the only reason any of this stuff exists CRT wokeness whatever is because literally <laughs> we lived in an apartheid country right. <laughs> until fifty years ago. Like I'm not trying to be funny. But literally, it was full on a uh, legal apartheid state until 50 years ago. Yeah, my, my father went to the first uh, desegregated school in his. He was like a junior in high school uh, when he went to the first like mixed race school in his town. So literally, uh, same for my father. I mean, like my my father because he was the youngest of seven just missed it all. But every single one of his siblings went to segregated schools in Virginia. So, like, I, I don't know. It's just. I, and I, I look, glanced at the comments today on Rising. I said this and, and when we were debating this with, with Bhatia and Robbie today. And they were like, I wish you would stop bringing that up. And I'm like, I wish I could go back in time and my parents didn't have to go to segregated schools. I don't know what you, I don't know what you want to tell me. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry it's inconvenient to you that all of my aunts and uncles who were very much alive went to segregated yeah. schools. Like, I don't, <laughs> like, this isn't history. Go talk to Aunt Andra. She's right there in Virginia. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's not a distant memory that that we can read about. You can walk through. My, I come from like a really really small town. Yeah. Like in North Carolina, and you can walk through my town and like point out which water fountains were like the black water fountains versus the right. White. It's like it's not something that we're reading about um, academically, right? It's it's our lived history, one generation behind us. And it's not even history. It's like the house. The house in the redlined neighborhood that my great grand my, my great grandparents on my mom's side are very young because they had kids young, but like that house is was purchased in the neighborhood that it was purchased in as a consequence of restrictive covenants. My great grandparent, like my great grand my grandfather, my father's father, was a plumber who wasn't allowed to join the plumbers union because he was black and worked in the navy yards in a substandard position, receiving substandard pay for his entire life until he died. You know, like these are not, and to act like there aren't consequences for all of my aunts and uncles as a consequence of his him not being able to have equality in his life, and that that doesn't have generational effects, and that doesn't affect whether or not what the what the housing values are and what the inheritances are and all of that. Just say you don't care. Like, 
that's fine. Say you don't care and that there's no way to correct that and that's just a mulligan and it sucks It sucks that that's what America was, but now we have to move forward. At least that's an honest argument. But don't say that the people who are trying to correct for that inequality are themselves trying to create inequality. I swear to God, I'm about to go She-Hulk if I have to respond to that thing one more time. The ironic thing is that cartoon of a purple-haired college liberal, you know, the other unspoken thing about that cartoonized individual is that they are likely white because minorities can't go around yelling at people like that. Facts. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not a real thing, you know? Facts. Or or I often do find, sometimes I do experience, like my mom has experienced this in DEI work, that a lot of people in that field that aren't white are more recent, come from more recent immigrant groups that might be also black or um, East, you know, East Asian or some, from some other more recent immigrant population, because there is either, there is like capital in being actually diverse in those spaces, but for the same historical reasons that black Americans don't have access to any number of things, we're also not really fulfilling roles in the DEI space. And my mom as one of the few black, like the only black Americans she ever encounters kind of in that space is always observing that with a wry smile. That it seems like to the extent that there's at least some way to profit off of this industry, black Americans aren't even profiting off of the DEI industry. It's Robin D'Angelo. Yeah, no joke. Yeah, we have one of those in our company, and she's only been there six months and already just seems defeated. So Yeah, I mean, it's, it's rough because we all know this. Like, DEI, HR is not there for employees, which is why my mom is like, don't tell. <laughs> you want, do you want to work there? Then don't tell. Like, if you don't want to work there, look for another job. But And then you can tell when you're on your way out the door. But, like... You, I mean, even then, like, it's just going to fall in deaf ears. Like, HR exists to protect us, the senior management, not everybody else, right? Exactly. It's it's there to make sure the company has dotted its P's or Q's so that when someone harasses somebody or molests somebody, the company can say, well, we told them not to, so it's not our fault if they did it anyway. And, and, oh, you didn't report it? Okay, well, then it's not our responsibility because we warned you that we have a reporting mechanism. So if you didn't say anything, then it's on you. Yeah. But if you do report it, you're probably not going to get anybody wanting to work with you going forward and your career is going to be a dead end. You know? Well, it's a bit of a conundrum. Yeah. Well, yeah. Man. Anyway, it's been good talking to you, Anthony. I'm glad you called in and I hope you, uh, you call in again in the future. Great show. Love the show, too. Thanks, Anthony. Keep the faith. Have a good one. You too. All right, Jonathan. What's on your mind tonight? Yeah, sorry about that. I kind of accidentally played myself. I meant to just be funny and go up there and uh, tell Brady to get down, but then I realized I gave up my place in the queue. (laughs) You did play yourself, Jonathan, but I didn't forget about you. And if Brady gets back in the queue, I'm not, like, trying to punish Brady either. But I cannot encourage. I cannot encourage whatever it is that you guys have figured out. To, to, to elbow yourself into the speaker queue. I, I borrowed my co-host magic carpet. <laughs> and that's it. I, you know, I, I certainly do owe you an apology for disbelieving you when you initially told me you did not invite him up there. Uh, I have no idea who originally sent him the invite, but uh, I, I, I now realize that it, it probably wasn't you. So, <laughs> but... Yeah, I had I had like three kind of three quick points because life moves fast in Brianna world. Like all your episodes are are banging, and I I don't mean to give the Matt Stoller episode short shrift, but uh, you know this one was fabulous. Uh, but I also had an epiphany uh, last 
week when you were uh, on with Batya, just Batya. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, like my co-host can vouch for me, I literally said exactly what you said in the call-in later that day. Um, and I was telling him that, you know, those kinds of, of things that she does kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies and I couldn't figure out why. And I, it hit me when I was actually watching the video on YouTube. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned to you before. I know I have to, to other people you know, but um, I used to be an APAC-trained campus advocate uh, mm-hmm. back in the early 2000s, right? And it hit me. She was using the exact same heavy-handed reframing and pivot and switch techniques that I was trained in 20 years ago. How so? How were you trained? I didn't know that that was the thing. Oh, the, the, like some of those little things she does, like, I think you'll agree with this. And then you're like, what, wait, what? No. And you know, those kinds of techniques, those reframing techniques, kind of forcing you down a certain Avenue. Those are things like, those aren't even normal PR training techniques. That's like, straight up advanced media training, like the kind they were talking about on the David Sirota movie. Uh, like that's, that's stuff that you have to get trained in. Like that's, that's not something people normally do when they're speaking. And so you're saying, tell me more about this APAC training. Like they're, they're doing, yeah, they, this they, is they involved. About, this, I'm kind of impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there, there are these, these kind of, of reframing techniques when you're in these conversations and they're supposed to be subtle. Like politicians use an extremely like heavy handed version of it. They call it the pivot and switch, uh, where they'll start talking about one thing and then like, uh, you know, you'll, or you'll ask them a question and then I'll be like, but the real issue is, and they'll pivot to their talking point. Like, that's the clumsy, heavy-handed version. Like, these kinds of subtle reframing techniques, like, but I think you'll agree with this, and then they'll misframe what you said, or they'll repeat back to you and misframe what you said. That is uh, an advanced version of that pivot and switch technique to move the conversation over to their terms. Yeah. I, look, I'm not trying to impute bad faith, but I do find that I have to – it takes more vigilance on my part to talk to some host versus others on the show. So like, it's not about what, how much I disagree or agree with somebody, you know, so, uh, if you laid out a list of issues, I might agree with Batyan more than, than Robbie, but I find myself having to be more vigilant and like use more mental energy when I'm talking with Batya. I think perhaps for that reason, because there, there can become a slippage there that's easy to fall into. And you can find yourself co-signing things. Whereas you know, whatever Robbie thinks is very honest and transparent and I can either pick it up or put it down, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm saying that's, that's not an accident. Like that's not something she's, she's oopsie. I didn't mean to do that. Like that's, that's, she's doing that on purpose. I'm not sure to what end or what the agenda is. Maybe she's just used to doing that, but um, yeah, that's, that's what's going on there. I, I figured I'd, I'd mention that because it, it really, I was kind of proud of myself for recognizing why it was making the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Uh, Cause it just, it triggered a memory when I was watching the video that didn't really trigger when I was just listening to it in podcast form. Cause I do love mm-hmm. that feature the rising has, but I, I didn't realize you were also going to be on this Monday. So I did not watch today's rising. And I look forward to, after I get off of here, going through the entire thing, and it sounds like it's going to be banging. Well, um, you guys got to watch us because we have a whole new look today, and I think the set looks pretty cool. And they they rolled out all these new graphics and new music, and um, looks like a very different 
I think more modern and crisp show. So let let me know what you think. You guys feel about the aesthetics of it all? Yeah, I did. I did pick up on that. I saw it, but I haven't yet got a chance to to actually dive in there, which I'm looking forward to. Because just the way you teased it at the beginning of this call, and sounds like it's going to be banging. Um, and as as far as this uh, this particular episode, uh, you know, I thought like the it was great. I was kind of surprised that none of them kind of like brought up the history of the word woke, which uh, I think I, I linked to a, a podcast episode where Devarian Baldwin was explaining that history. It actually sounds kind of cool. Like the movie, they live, uh, you know, seeing beneath the surface, like, you know, people want you to be complacent and think everything's wonderful and you need to look a little closer and see, you know, where the, the seamy underbelly of, of racism and justice and, and, you know, oppression, uh, economic and otherwise, that sort of thing. And, you know, they tell each other, stay woke. And mm-hmm. uh, that it, it comes from, I think, like a 1952 novel uh, by Ralph Ellison, I'm wanting to say, because I, I just re-listened to that episode. Like, the very involved one is somebody you might actually want to have on, not necessarily even to talk about this. He wrote a fabulous book about uh, university-driven gentrification in major cities, but he is a fantastic explainer of things, and his students are very, very lucky. Um, he teaches at, I can't remember which fancy liberal arts school in, in Connecticut, but, um, you know, like, he's he's really good. And uh, I also kind of wanted to mention the um, the fact that, because uh, I've been doing a little deep dive into into some of the Red Scare history, I thought I'd point out that Ron DeSantis' anti-woke law and a lot of other things that he's done are classic Red Scare tactics. And a lot of these, you know, the inability to define it in the nonspecific is the point. And it, it kind of yep. always works. I mean, I mean, to be honest, and, Jonathan, yeah. that's part of why I am a little less interested in, like, doing the whole rigmarole, rigmarole of, well, this is what woke originally means. And they co-opted African-American vernacular. And da, 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 da. Like, because it's not... It's not the point. And that actually wasn't my point with Bethany either. You know, I wasn't expecting, I wasn't waiting for Bethany to give her definition. And then I say, aha, but the way black Americans use woke is to say this. And so therefore you're wrong. Like, no, whatever she said, I don't really give a shit. Like whatever she said, I wanted to know, like I I was probably going to disagree with it. And I just wanted to disagree with it and make her own what she actually meant. And then get the audience to be able to say whether they're with it or not. Because when you remove it, when you make it like a third, you know, three degree, three, three dimensional chess and you remove, you abstract it to this word that can mean so many things to so many people, then you can get all this agreement. But when Bethany has to come up with an example and all she can come up with was a five-year-old girl said she likes girls, like every single five-year-old girl likes girls because boys are stupid and have cooties, you know, like, (laughs) and like, you're the one sexualizing this like a weirdo, like then, then she's exposed on her own. You know, and we don't have to get into if it became a conversation between Bethany and I about how well black people use woke like this and you're appropriating the word woke. Well, then I'm now I've lost an audience that might have been with me if I just let Bethany hang her hang her hoist herself by her own petard or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think uh, nobody was was more surprised that this uh, this whole thing went as viral as it did than the the Vanguard boys themselves. <laughs> but I mean, I like it, to a certain degree, it probably is almost a little bit frustrating for you just because of like I you know I know you realized a lot of that and the fact that there is a pattern with Ron DeSantis and I do not have 
any illusions. I am certain that he is a student of history. He borrowed from the reverse freedom rides uh, back around midterms. Like he is using old things from history yeah. uh, that he knows works. And these yeah. kinds of things are meant to police political discourse. Um, and, you know, there's other kinds of like, don't say it, like the, the anti-trans stuff that he passed, mm -hmm. uh, all of those things very vaguely defined on purpose. And the culture war stuff is also meant to, you know, that was also used back in the day with the communism or the anarchism back in the 19th century and early 20th century and that sort of thing, all intentionally vaguely defined, used to stoke culture wars and let people project onto it whatever they want it to mean that they yeah, hate. I, I made a mistake today on the show. I realized that I've been referring to these anti-trans bills and I looked at the comments and people were like, it's not true. There was no bill that didn't allow you to wear what you wanted to wear. There's no bill like they they they're imagining and, and Bhatia kept doing this in the conversation, too. But can't you agree about how ki some kids there's some things that kids shouldn't see? And it's like, OK, so what? What? Say the thing that you think the kids shouldn't see, because these bills are legislating a bunch of stuff that I don't care if kids see. If like are you saying kids shouldn't see porn? Guess what? One. Kids can go on the Internet and find porn like there's no law yeah. against that currently. So I don't know what to tell you. That's between you and your children. And and secondly... No, wait, wait, wait. They're stopped when they say you must click 18. <laughs> you're 18 before you go in here. That stops them dead. There's no kids seeing porn. Right. But moreover, you know, you can't go into a strip club if you're under 18. There's laws against that sort of stuff. So I don't know what you want from me. What do you want from me? It's like if I, if I, if I just... It's like, it's, like, it's like the thing where it's like you shouldn't beat your wife. Like the, the, the politician who's, who, you know, like has to defend like if you make the conversation about something that hasn't even happened but you're now on the back foot it's already done its job and these republicans have realized that and they're like well don't you think that you know you, we gotta protect children from what make them say from what what exactly do you want do you want to make it illegal for adults to see drag shows do you want it to be illegal for parents to take their kids to a rated r movie then say that. Say that your goal in life is to limit parents' freedoms to take them. Are you asking what my personal opinion is on whether a kid should go see Silence of the Lamb? Or what my personal opinion is of a kid going to see a more suggestive, sexually suggestive drag show? Honestly, I don't have children, and this is why. It's none of my business, and I don't really care. But if you don't want to do it, you should talk to your friends and family who are doing those kinds of things. But I don't understand why this is in the province, uh, province of the law. Uh, so that they can selectively prosecute people. That's that's basically it. Or threaten them with selective prosecution. Uh, that's kind of how it was used back in the day. Right. So uh, that, that's why it's yeah. so important to make people just say what it is that they're trying to do. Ben Shapiro going on TV and saying, uh, we covered this on Rising last week, and saying that he thinks that, you know, child hunger isn't really a big deal. And if, if, if children really are starving, then that's a parent neglect issue and parent and kids should be taken from their parents and put in the foster system. Look, they're getting so out of pocket that they're saying crazy stuff that nobody agrees with. And that's a good thing for the left. But you got to push them in that direction to actually own these cockamamie opinions that nobody agrees with. Poor kids should be taken from their parents because their parents don't have money to keep the fridges full as yours. Only rich people deserve to have, to have kids. What about the, the kids who are facing food insecurity who are already in the foster care system because we don't sufficiently fund foster parents and support people who are already in the system? 
I mean, it's it's wild stuff. And Democrats and leftists should be should be on that wild stuff, and highlighting the extent to which these are all anti-worker policies. The anti-Disney stuff is an anti-worker policy. You know, you yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Actually, yeah. Last week, you you kind of did like two of the better radars I've seen actually on. Those two topics, the, you know, the one, which is the important point, they want you fighting a culture war so you don't see the class war that's really going on all around you. And the other one was, of course, that, that uh, you know, taking away lunches from kids. And it's having nuts. Lunch. Like, it, it's like that is something like keep in mind, like my dad is very right wing, but like the one thing that will always get around that is like the one thing any homeless person can say, the magic word is I'm hungry. Okay. Yeah. And like that image of taking food away from children in the lunch line because they can't afford to pay the money and dumping it in the garbage. So they can't have it is something that would outrage even a lot of right wingers. Yes. And, and like I said last yeah. week on, on Colin, one of the, produ- I'm not trying to put people's business out, but like one of our, producers who you know came up it was conservative like a lot of people who work on rising are conservative and came up to me and was like i'm glad y'all did that segment because i grew up poor i grew up food insecure i'm a i'm a white conservative and ben shapiro was talking crazy talk like that's insane nobody relates to that and that's again like if you get caught up with what's going to win on like a elite news cycle you might think that ben shapiro is convincing someone but remember ben shapiro is a harvard law douchebag who has no connection to any of the people that he purports to stand for. And that's an, an area on which he can be exploited and exposed. But it's not going to happen from another Harvard douchebag on MSNBC. It's just not. But real people, like we sometimes we feel like we're losing it because we're not, you know, the, the actual people don't get a platform and don't get an opportunity to push back against people like Ben Shapiro. But I was very heartened to hear that, you know, no one, like, People who've actually struggled in their lives aren't being convinced by that absurdity of a pitch. Oh, like we got it. He was, he was like the idea that Ben Shapiro would take me from my mother because she struggled to put food on the table from, from time to time was deeply offensive to him as well. It should have been. And to that first caller in line on that call in. Uh, yeah. Who is, oh, absolutely. Way, spectacular. Like that was that was the like. It's almost too bad you couldn't make that into a rising segment. Yeah. Because that guy, that guy was on fire. But anyway, that's that's kind of all I had for today. And uh, stay woke and uh, watch out for Bakia. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for calling in. By the way, I saw as I was um, scrolling Twitter. Apparently, there was an, a segment on Fox Five where they were talking about. Saki segment on my segment about woke with Bethany and the guest again for couldn't figure out how to um, define woke. So I just want to listen to this real quick. It's short if you guys don't mind. One of the things about woke is, Matt, can you explain it to your mom? Think about that. And I remember when President Trump was running and it was before he won in, in 2016, he used to get standing ovations initially when he would say political correctness is ruining our country and everybody that was clapping knew exactly what he meant but it's sort of like the supreme court definition of pornography you know it when you see it so the democrats want to get you in an argument where you're having to define defined wokeism as if the webster's dictionary is defining it 
sorry, my computer froze. The clip didn't end. It's just thinking. And that's not what it is. It is. It 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 could be a. Ugh! God damn it! I have too many windows open. I think. Sorry. Feeling. It could be a sense. And I wonder if. Brianna. What do you have to say? Republicans or conservatives are going to have to define it more. She could. I'm sorry. This is what happens when you save all your videos right. to your desktop. This, this Here, let me tested, just back it up for a numbers you showed. Oh, She was really about to get into it, too. And but it's sort of like the Supreme Court definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. So the Democrats want to get you in an argument where you're having to define de- wokeism as if the Webster's Dictionary is defining it. And that's not what it is. It, is, it, it, it could be a feeling. It could be a sense. And I wonder if Republicans or conservatives are going to have to define it more. She could be right. I don't know. This, this will be tested. But the other poll numbers you showed are important. The one thing I don't see any candidate really doing right now is talking about a plan for pro-growth economic means. And that's what Americans are pretty desperately looking for. Well, I agree with that. If, if the panic around wokeness and Republicans woke looking is- bad about wokeness forces them to go back to advancing some kind of substantive economic agenda, I'm sure I'll hate it, but that seems like an improvement to me. Yeah, pro-growth. LOL, I hear you, Odo. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot I didn't call on anybody. Um, let us see. Let us see. Who should we call on? Kate. Kate, what is on your mind this evening? Yep, you, I just there got, you go. Yeah, it took me a minute. I'm very new at this, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I, <laughs> I really, I got to listen to um, the bad faith uh, today, and it just took me wildly back to the '90s. Um, mm-hmm. That uh, that strategy of appropriating left concepts. Um, it was explicitly adopted and used by conservative in, um, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time talking here. <laughs> no, you're great. Take your time. Uh, okay. It was used by conservatives in what they called high ground articulations. And, um, you know, Jonathan kind of uh, alluded to, to this, you know, I mean, that these strategies are out there and they're very well defined by the right. Um, uh, when in the 90s, this was really specific to political correctness. Um, and more more specifically to the humanities programs in academia. Um, uh, and if you don't mind, I'll read one. It's a, a not real long, but a, a paragraph um, in an anthology on after political correctness. Sure. Uh, humanities. Um, and it's by Sarah Diamond. She is a sociologist and an, an attorney, um, and she's written some books. But back then, I think it was when she was um, actually still an, an academic. But So she's talking about the, this uh, actual strategy that um, – so backing up a little bit. I think this is more about what you were talking about rather than just the definition of what is political – I mean, what is um, wokeness. You know, less, that's less interesting in finding out – uh, why it's being used um, by the right in the way mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And so this, this uh, paragraph kind of lays it out. 
So by the late 1984, uh, the campus organizing plan, and I put in by conservatives, was spelled out in a confidential memo, the report on the universities written by Roderick Richardson for the Smith Richardson Foundation. And she says it's worth noting that this foundation has had a history of sponsoring CIA-linked media projects mm-hmm. and, leadership, yeah, and leadership training programs for CIA and Defense Department personnel. So you know who they are. Uh, the document proposed to distinguish two possible anti-left strategies, deterrence activism and high ground articulation, also termed idea marketing. Deterrence activism, wrote Richardson, exists purely in a response to left wing agenda, and it's not very interesting, frankly boring. And it is a kind of act- activism sponsored heretofore. At best, it is a form of cheerleading that can focus uh, some attention on stirring events, uh, in stirring media events. Instead, Richardson advocated high ground activism or articulation, the attempt to steal one or another high ground away from the left by both action and articulation. As noted, it involves doing things like insisting on rigorous discussion and debates, setting up political unions, battling divestiture and other causes, not calling their goals wrong necessarily, but proposing the better ways of solving the problem. Student journalism is a high ground approach. Richardson uh, recommended that the right mimic left-wing organization by forming what he called regional resource centers, starting with faculty network, on one area of the country, like in his example, New England or New York. The aim of such a group is to set up a permanent network to diffuse the left, to grab the high ground, to change the atmosphere, and specifically then on campuses, and perhaps to help command the corner of the national agenda. This was all going on when all of a sudden, you know, um, people were retiring out of, um, you know, the older uh, people who were kind of running the academics. And it was kind of to grab, uh, you know, uh, it was that whole idea of uh, it was being run by the left. You still hear it, you know, you know, the universities are so leftist, mm-hmm. you know, and to grab that. So this strategy of, you know, actually taking um, a word like woke and, um, you know, appropriating it and rearticulating it in a way, um, you know, that, uh, that, you know, then, you know, kind of pulls it over to the, you've got all the right going, oh, you know, wokeness, you know, they, they, are, you know, redefining it. And in my opinion, um, I think that it has, uh, as it's kind of morphed more into culture, um, I've kind of watched these appropriations play out on a couple of levels rather than just from the right. Um, It's also, you know, as it goes into mainstream. So, for example, you know, the oligarchs and corporations, um, you have, uh, you know, when, when diversity was a big issue in corporations and how that. Oh, no. Kate? Kate, we lost you at diversities in yeah. corporations what? and how that. Kate, are you cut out for again? a second? We lost you after, you, we lost you after diversity in corporations and how that. Oh. And then you cut out. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. So let's see. Yeah. So in, so th- that whole term of diversity became kind of bastardized, you know, mm-hmm. in, in rather than it was divorce. Oh no. Kate. Yes. It, it gets diluted Kate. in ways that. Oh no. What's sorry. Sorry. It was divorced. It, you, you left a divorce and came back at diluted in ways. Um, let's see. I'm wondering, I look like I've got, can you hear me? 
Yeah, you're good. I'm sorry. I think it's just it's like for like now? little three seconds at a time. Just push through. I won't interrupt again. Just push through. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I'll try. I don't know what's happening. I don't see anything going on with my phone. Yeah, it's weird. Cause you're very but, clear but, and but, audible, you know, but then you just disappear for like a few seconds. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, and that's happening when you're talking too. So I guess it must be my phone here. I thought it was you. <laughs> Are you getting um, a call or a text so, maybe? I, no, no, uh-uh, I'm not. Weird. Um, I, yeah, I'll, uh, you know, so it, that's pretty much wrapping it up. What I what I had to say, but you know, it's been, but but I guess, well, I guess the final part of that was as this two step level. So you know, mainstream takes these concepts maybe first, often you know, like so woke, you know, it's and 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 diversity and you know, just kind of white breads them to the point where they don't mean anything or they become something, you know, really. And it actually is makes that lever even easier for the right to hook onto. So it's a strategy from the right, which is, I think, being used on a couple levels. But that's pretty much what I have to say. And I think your te- I really agree with you that the better strategy is uh, not to ignore it, like uh, Freddie said, uh, but that that when you have these conversations is to try and know how to deconstruct what's really going on and, and also articulate what, you know, what your opinion or, you know, your uh, sense of whatever that idea is. Yeah. I do feel like people are like, I noticed this in the responses to my radars from last week, both of which kind of dealt with the, higher level of what this strategy is being deployed to do rather than debating the merits of a given word, et cetera. And the audience seems to really respond to that. One, because I think that we're living in a conspiratorial time and that these these conspiracies keep getting validated and justified, right? I I don't call people (laughs) conspiratorial because I think they're kooks. I'm saying that they understand that there's a game afoot and that they're on the losing end of it. So when you frame something as, okay, whatever you think about wokeness, why do you think that everybody's participating in this? They're interested. Moreover, they see me make parallels between what the liberals have been doing with weaponizing identity and what conservatives are doing and weaponizing identity, frankly, on the other end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say, well, who's actually talking about the things that care, you care most about, there is an aha moment. So I think there's, I, I don't have any doubt in my mind that getting past wokeness and getting past these conservative strategies is very possible. My concern is that the thing that makes it the most possible is having a crystallized alternative affirmative image for how we should be planning our society, like how we should be designing our society to help regular working class and lower class and poor people like that. And without that alternative, it's just a difficult dance. And it's ultimately a rhetorical show that I'm doing every day, because how often how, how much longer can I say? We have a corporate duopoly. We have two corrupt parties. We have two people taking, you know, money from corporatists. Like, how often can I say that and say, well, we need reform in, in campaign financing if neither party is going to offer it? There's no political pressure to push it. Yeah. Not even Bernie is really talking about campaign finance reform. No, 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 the progressives. I, maybe I missed it. Maybe there was some campaign finance reform bill that was put <laughs> forward by House progressives last term, and I missed it. It could be. I, I, I don't think so. 
but you know, so there's, there's limits. Like, so I'm not, I'm not like so stressed out about oh, how are we going to get past wokeness? It is irritating to me though. I, I think you made a great point about how conservatives took lessons from the successes of leftists in social movements in the middle part of the last century. Right. I, I think it was, um, was it, um, Ralph Nader who said the first time he came on the show that the only people reading Sololinsky are conservatives. Like exactly right. Yeah. 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 Like they, they get it and they're implementing our plans. Like the whole point of the Powell memo and the discussion that we had with my favorite law professor, John Hansen was in part like conservatives looked up in like 1971 and were like, Oh shit. Like we are losing big time. What is the left doing to win? And how do we get on the, on the front foot? Like how do we strategize for a longer term strategy? How do we take back the colleges? How do we take back the media? How do we take back the narrative? And their answer was we infiltrate colleges. We start fed sock. We infiltrate the courts. We, invent a whole new right-wing television channel called Fox News that comes to fruition 20 years later. And it worked. It's been, it's been incredibly intentional all along. And, you know, um, they, I mean, they've just beat, um, I think the left hands down and, um, and how it's so, and it's not just the think tanks. Those think tanks have been very, um, uh, very good at at getting that out too, like you know, general culture, you know, like the Marjorie Taylor Greens, you know, and mm-hmm. people like that, you know, where where they are, uh, you know, uh, those strategies have become inherent into how they um, how they operate on so many levels. But it took them decades, you know, and we just kind of sat back and and went, you know. Well, the 60s happened and I'm old. And so um, and then just let's twiddle our thumbs. And, uh, you know, we've won everything forever. You know, progress only goes in one direction. Mm-hmm. And um, long arc of the moral universe is not one directional, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm afraid so. And not, you know, people of my generation uh, don't seem to get that particularly well. So, you know, that's really, I mean, I just that I, I just felt that it was really important that this is an intentional to let to, to say that, that this is an intentional strategy, you know, whether whether each person who uses it on the right is intentionally doing it based on, you know, what came out of, of that particular, um, you know, uh, you know, letter or whatever. Whatever, you know, that uh, study um, isn't the point, but but uh, it's so it's it's become diffuse throughout that whole right wing. But the but the strategy itself was intentionally inserted in there. And and we we and we need to when we come across it, you know, rather than going into like like you said, every time everybody responded back with, well, this is what I think woke is. You know, um, rather than that, you know, is to, you know, to kind of start to deconstruct, first of all, what they mean. And also, um, you know, getting down to the direct issues or or um, whatever comes out of that conversation rather than just allowing it to go by and 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 kind of tacit agreement that, oh, yeah, woke is something that we're all, you know, just talking about, you know, kind of stop it, you know, have, yeah. have those direct conversations. And I, I'm done. I can, I'll get yeah. off. Oh, no, oh, you were great. I really appreciate you calling in, Kate. I hope to hear more from you going forward. I, I, I'd love to. I, I very seldom, uh, it's a bad time for me to call in, but this one I really wanted to, and I'll, I'll make, I always listen afterwards. So I'm there in spirit. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you can make it. Is it because today's was a little bit earlier? 
it was yeah it was earlier so yeah I, that, that made it easier um when usually you start it's kind of like right in i'm on the west coast you know kind of i've got an old dog and a husband and and things are happening at that time <laughs> two old dogs now just kidding that's right <laughs> no you're not kidding it's right <laughs> all right well thanks it's been a really great chatting kate and i will keep an eye out for you if i ever do if i do uh, earlier episodes in the future Oh, perfect. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, keep the faith, Kate. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Neoliberal tears. What's on your mind tonight, my friend? Howdy. Hey, bestie. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, and it's going to haunt me. Um, But, uh, yeah, I was, first of all, amazing. You're doing amazing work. The studio is fire. (laughs) Um, chemistry between all of you was unbelievable it was so like everybody brought it it was amazing yeah it felt good like I know that you know people in this community don't agree with Batia's takes but it did feel like good discourse you know yeah Yeah. my co-host I think um, has some ideas about Batia and APAC and you know I leave room for conspiracies because why not Um, (laughs) uh, but like uh, I think with her, like, I think more so she was finding places to agree with you because you're that persuasive. And I see that as a, such a worthwhile effort. And it's so engaging. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, and I also wanted to throw something out there for the, because I've been fascinated with the entire woke discourse. Um, mm-hmm. because it's sort of exposed that nobody, n- knows exactly what they mean when they talk about it. Sometimes they mean weaponized identity politics. Sometimes mm-hmm. they mean something totally different. And I think you really exposed that. Um, and I think it was so perfect. Like you couldn't have directed Bethany to have that kind of like uh, guttural voice, uh, throat noises that she was giving when you asked her. <laughs> like it was like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm being nice. Like it was just. You are not. And you know it. <laughs> I'm being so kind. And and when you were like, you can take your time. I mean, even TYT, Jimmy, and like everybody gave you props. And I just think Bethany is the uniter we needed. Like, you know, maybe we should run her for president. Like, I don't know. But like, um, I do think that Saki was using that clip and Emerson, you saw everybody using it. And mm-hmm. I think maybe, maybe because they did sort of feel like it's a vulnerability for DeSantis and all of these people that Brie exposed in such a fascinating way. I'm sure Alyssa uh, uh, p- uh, pitched it as a segment on the view and they um one day they will say yes well i um, saw she was on either msnbc or cnn talking about it um wait, she, yeah Alyssa was on with i think with uh, don lemon so that would have been cnn uh oh, yeah. talking about this segment so she she definitely knows i don't know if they brought her on because they know that she used to be on rising or that she pitched it to them or whatever but she's, she's definitely amazing. aware of it She's like, I mean, obviously her politics are, I, I disagree with, but she's actually like, she makes excellent points. She does. We like it. We, we I, I mean, I stand. Um, yeah. I also think all her looks are really solid. She always looks great. <laughs> That's not the point, but I got to say it. <laughs> we love the view. I mean, we love it. Um, she, um, you know, and she's a great, an amazing addition there. But I, I wanted to throw something quickly out there. I'm sorry. I'm not going to take long. Um, sure. So years ago, again, old, I wrote my thesis and it's before I even was aware of uh, terms like woke and uh, identity politics. It was in linguistics and my title was Imperialism Through Gay Rights. 
mm-hmm. and I was sort of building on this idea at the time that was very clear uh, in academia that it was called imperialism through feminism, which was basically looking at countries like Afghanistan and tell them, oh, my God, you're so unliberated because you're you can't have a headdresser on when really in the 70s before the U.S. meddled, they had quite a bit more rights. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was sort of the idea of using or, uh, you know, uh, uh, feminist feminism and feminist rights as a as a as a tool to say this is a barbaric nation and we have we have a moral duty uh manifest destiny whatever we have to intervene and so my thesis was tracking and you were t- talking on rising about uh about john kirby talking about gay people in russia and how we need to liberate them and i was like years ago i was pointing out that there was um i was tracking it you, you know and there was an article in the new york times from the 90s uh, that talked about the title was Russia's gays hide in the shadows, living in the darkness, you know, and, and the article would talk about how oppressed gay people were, uh, mm-hmm. because they, unlike Americans, they don't have a Castro street, um, like San Francisco does, where they can mm-hmm. go and express themselves. And just the, so I was pointing out the hypocrisy of saying basically, uh, use, using moral judgments of another country when domestically, they passed DOMA. Uh, Matthew Shepard was lynched, um, you know, in, in, I believe it was Texas, mm. um, for being gay. So there was a lot of hypocrisy. And I also pointed out that, you know, gay people in Saudi Arabia don't get the same treatment from the State Department. You know, we don't, we, we, we focus a lot on gay people in Russia, mm-hmm. or gay mm-hmm. people in selected countries that, so it's sort of selective. And I guess I was wondering if, uh, what people try to describe as woke today could be attributed to some elements of imperialism through gay rights or banks putting on a gay flag to say Black Lives Matter. I do think that there is a very relevant parallel in a foreign co- policy context te- uh, text to our selective outreach. The irony is, you know, would <laughs> Chris Rock spends his whole titles his uh, stand up about selective outrage, frames it as the world is mad about him making a comment about Jada Pinkett Smith, but not about Will Smith punching him in the face. And then does grievance culture for himself the entire episode, very selectively outraged about the things that bother him, which is fine. But like, it's the exact same thing that's going on in the context, in the the foreign policy context you described. We talked about this on the show today. The um, ICC's choice to levy these, you know, criminal charges against Putin. You know, Putin certainly done a lot of things that I'm sure he should be rotten away in jail for. But so have all of our allies. And in the context of an, of an open question of whether or not we bomb the critical infrastructure of an ally in contravention of international law, to be putting uh, Putin on a list on the 20th anniversary of uh, the, our invasion of Iraq, like, it, it's sus, you know? And I, I think there's definitely... Yeah, it's, it's very much been the case with our allyship with Saudi Arabia has been deeply embarrassing because it's really undermined our ability to make all kinds of civil rights and human rights claims. But, of course, nobody really cares. America doesn't sign on to the International Convention of the Rights of the Child and any number of other U.N. humanitarian policies because we don't guarantee basic rights like health care and education. We, we don't guarantee education for our children. You know, we don't guarantee housing for our children. So... 
we just we 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 do this weird pantomime of being global moral leaders and if you call it out then you're you're described as a putin apologist or an apologist or something else but none of america america's never described as a you know khashoggi killing apologist except for in these left circles and these little corners of twitter and the internet yeah exactly and it's and i just see it as a gay person it's sadistic to me to use yeah. like our rights and our struggles to say we need to liberate pakistani like that's 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 hysterically false and that's yeah. why sometimes i think our job in the left comms community of which i am a proud part um <laughs> is 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 to, is to basically co-opt their own words and say no this is what we mean you know and play the game um i i i mean i don't i don't know if that's right but i i know that that trend of imperialism through gay rights it's been it's been in the making i even it was so like it was i'm trying not to say how many years ago it was but the at the time i i wrote about it biden was actually he was still vice president and he was giving a speech at the human rights campaign and he was basically saying like you know this was to uh, so okay it was 2014 i'm going to out myself but like you know you would it was a year only a year after doma was um taken down hillary clinton was still against gay marriage it took her until 2015 she had to be dragged uh-huh. um but he was out biden was out there our president now giving a speech saying how gay gay people in chechnya really need like we really need to focus our state this is where the next battle was going to be Mm-hmm. and i saw it as really dangerous and i also and i also linked it to an asylum seeker from saudi arabia who uh applied and got rejected because we don't treat we don't have a moral what i think you were saying um like a level playing field like we <laughs> there's hypocrisy there and i think we do have to fight against it somehow um or maybe reclaim it or you know say that woke is actually like chris hedges wrote a substack about i think he called it woke imperialism i don't mm-hmm. know if that's the most efficient use but but there's something about uh i or weaponized identity politics or there's something there that yeah. i think DeSantis isn't hitting at because he's trying to do his own game. Um Yeah, and that um, that hypocrisy that's what's so frustrating. The left should be owning this point about these corporations being bad and hypocritical. Right? The banks are bad, but not because they have a black person and a gay person and two veterans on their board. That that's not the problem with SVB, but they are bad because they do use "Quote unquote wokeness," this idea that they are down for historically marginalized groups because there's some representational politics at play, to cloak themselves in a veneer of progressivism, and so we don't look too closely at the fact that they are not hiring risk officers, you know. And, and so, like I, the, the but the left liberals liberals won't do that argument. They won't take that. They won't fill that void. Everyone can feel that something's off. Everyone can feel that there's been some perversion, some distortion of things that we all kind of believe in. I think most Republicans at this point at very least because of hard-fought battles believe in gay marriage, believe in gay rights broadly, right? Like but people are vulnerable and they believe broadly that black people should be equal and segregation is bad and all that kind of thing. We're not fighting that kind of battle anymore. But they are susceptible to this idea that something has soured 
There's something a little off about the pitch that is being made about equality. And so they're, they're vulnerable when someone like DeSantis comes on, around and says, well, nobody really cares about you. And they're trying to give away things for free. And, and, and then there, there's enough of a feeling of unease about how the liberal, liberals are pitching stuff that they're willing to say, well, if the only critique of this is coming from the right, then I'll take it from the right. But I think, I really do believe that they are also open to the idea that the corporations are bad, not because there's a black person on the board, but because they're using the black people on the board to justify all kinds of other bad behaviors. 100%. And it's just really frustrating to me that there is, there's just no one making that argument. And frankly, Bernie should have made that argument more strongly in, in 2020. He should have yeah. leaned into that corporate corruption and had the confidence to even talk about um, weaponized identity politics. A hundred percent. And oh my God, your Bernie impression. Unbelievable. <laughs> like I transcend whenever that happens. It's amazing. Um, a hundred percent. And I think you're so spot on. And I also think that that vulnerability exists. Look, as a gay person, I love saying that. I hated saying that. But I hate Pete Buttigieg. I hate Pete Buttigieg. Like, I can't even tell. Can you imagine running on Medicare for all who want it? And then a pandemic happens and you're like, actually, never mind. I'm, oh, I don't he's believe the biggest in that schmuck. anymore. He's the like, biggest. He doesn't believe in anything. He doesn't. But by the way, does Pete Buttigieg just really say as a gay person? Because I feel like he kind of doesn't even. No, no. No, no, but Dude, he's, I mean, he's I mean, yeah. But Corinne Jean-Pierre, okay, I'll use another example. Corinne Jean-Pierre recently said something like, this administration has more LGBT representation than ever before. And that rubs people like me the wrong way because it's like, none of you share my politics and you're pretending like an achievement, an achievement on its own because it's a, it's a personal achievement for you. It's a joke and it's actually disguising the extent to which you're all <laughs> incredible sellouts. Like, I think, I think even the Republicans remember when Myra Flores was running and she was like the first Mexican born Congress member and they were celebrating her around. They were like, Oh my God, look, we have Mexican representation in the Republican party. Like it's a joke at this point. Like yeah. everyone weaponizes the, it for the, the Deb Howland, the Deb Howland overseeing this new Arctic oil drilling is a particularly devastating betrayal. To have the first Native American Secretary of the Interior being trotted out to paper over the disappointment that is Joe Biden doing this huge, um, proving this huge oil yeah, drilling you know product, project. You know really help gay people and transgender people? Not, not ruining our environment. <laughs> Maybe yeah. healthcare. But all they want to give us is like, you know, oh, before we start a session, we'll all introduce our pronouns and or we'll put it in the bio. That's the, the last thing yep. I'll say is... Um, I, do you remember? Okay, this is a this is someone who's running away from you right now, like Anand Girandaras. Um, his book, Winner Takes All. Um, he he had a great anecdote in the beginning, where he was talking about like um, there was a there was a person, um, and I, it, it, it was a woman, and I think she came up with this idea that if you every morning, if you're a woman and you wake up and you put both of your hands on your hips and you stand up with your back straight mm -hmm. for twenty minutes you like something in your brain chemistry would change and you would become more mm -hmm. confident and empowered. Mm -hmm. And she said, after that, all of the CEOs in corporate America ran her on a world tour mm -hmm. because it was like, it was the kind of change that cost them nothing. Exactly. And it was a superficial, but it was fake empowerment. And I think that's what gives people like Ron DeSantis the vulnerability. And, but I think, I think you dismantled a lot, like 90% of Republican research and op, 
just by that interview and Bethany making those throat, throat noises. And so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I wrote my thesis 10 years ago and I could come up with a definition for imperialism through gay rights. It's embarrassing that she was like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> like it was, it was hilarious. I mean, look, I, I have been thinking about all of this and how much traction this woke stuff got and how much I've been, you know, encouraged to write a book. And I was thinking I could really rattle off some real quick thoughts about about wokeness and that maybe maybe this wokeness conversation is a way to organize so many of the things I've been saying about identity politics and you know making the pitch for how the left and the right are doing something similar but different and this analogy about what Hillary Clinton was doing with this breaking up the banks comment which to me is still one of the most cynical mm -hmm. sentences that have ever been said in the history of all time juxtaposed with what conservatives are doing now and like explaining to liberals that this is kind of the the consequences this is this is this is this the what's the, the seeds they have sown are coming home to roost if i can mix like 15 metaphors um i thought about it being like a book for you know here liberal listen liberal <laughs> you know a kind of updated version of them to understand what's going on on the left and how they've missed this Trump populist, faux populist moment. But I think that maybe instead of targeting it to liberals in that explicit way, talking about wokeness and keeping a conservative audience in mind as well, a good faith working class, genuinely populist conservative audience in mind as well might be a better way to do it. You know, because everyone's getting screwed. Yeah. Yes. First of all, yes. Oh my God, yes. Um, we all want your book. The chat is going crazy. Um, but, uh, Are you guys going to be mad at me if I go down to one bad faith episode a week while I write it? No. No. Are you kidding? No. We got you. We got you, bro. Um, but yeah, I think I think we do need. I th what I was thinking about, like as gay, like I was thinking, maybe that critique has to come from. Like the critique against Buttigieg hits harder when it comes from people who are gay or LGBT. Yeah, for sure. And so that's I why guess. I've always felt a responsibility to do the race stuff myself. So yeah, look, I hear I hear what you're saying. So you're are you're gonna you're gonna be the one that mounts the challenge when Buttigieg runs in 2028. Um, actually, um, my, the current presidential candidate I'm working on is about to write a book and that's sort of like on the trajectory to run for president. It's her name is Brianna Joy Gray. LOL. Um, All right. <laughs> I'm just saying if you, I, when Buttigieg runs, we're going to need people writing articles explaining why he's terrible oh, without that. getting hit by a homophobia <laughs> accusations. And so if you need me to hook you up with. Look, all I know is how to get. All I know how to do is get a writing gig at the Intercept or Current Affairs. So, if you want me to hook you up with either of those institutions, that's a sure thing. And I could probably scrounge up my old editor at the Guardian if I had to. So, just let me know. Oh my God, I would absolutely. I mean, Ryan would have a heart attack before he would ever let me, <laughs> uh, let me talk. Um, okay, wait. I had one last thing I wanted to throw throw at you. Um, sure. Uh, okay, can we get Robbie to say, um, we'll have more rising for you right after this? I feel like Crystal worked a lot, really hard to get that, like, that perfect ending jingle to say, like, we'll have more rising for you right after this. He'll always say something like, stay tuned or please stick around with us. Like, I think it, we've been trying to mix it up because we feel like robots or something, oh, but you're wow. saying that you like, you like the consistency. 
Oh, love it. Because it's, th- there was something really special about all of these words together. And also like, <laughs> w- right after this, you know, there's always, because YouTube usually would leave you playing. Some people would say that they've listened to Rising for seven hours because they just let it autoplay keep going. So th- after this, it, it's like an amorphous term. Like, what is this? What is after? So, <laughs> all right. I'll bring it up to Robbie and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see what he thinks and I'll report back to you on Thursday. Thank you again, Brie. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Neoliberal tears. Look, I, I, I kind of wanted to get through a little bit more of this cue, but I started early because once again, your girl has dinner plans. Um, so I think I'm going to wrap it. I'm going to try to take us out with Harold Melvin in the blue notes. I think you're going to enjoy this song selection. And I will see you on Thursday for more this song is of this. The title tune from Keep the Faith, my friends. EP, which is entitled Wake Up Everybody. And I'm sure you will all agree there are things that need to be done in this country today. So what I'd like for you to do is listen very carefully and see what you can do to lend a hand. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed No more back to thinking, time for thinking ahead The world has changed so very much from what it used to be There's so much hatred, war and poverty Teachers, time to teach a new way. They're the ones who are coming up. What you have to say? They're the ones who's coming up, and the world is in their hands. When you teach the children, teach them the very best you can. You and me.